Hey, I'm Eric Tornberg, and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes them makers, what drives them, what they're scared of, how they make sense of the world, and everything in between. This week's episode is with none other than Ariana Huffington. Ariana, of course, is the founder of Huffington Post, a recent board member of Uber, and also author of a few books, most recent of which is The Sleep Revolution. We talk about the book, all things sleep, such as why we glamorize burnout, what inspired her to write the book, what she's doing to spark a sleep revolution. We also talk about the story behind her joining Uber, her background and how she got into tech in the first place, and her long-term ambitions and thoughts on legacy. I was absolutely blown away by Ariana here, and I think you will enjoy this episode. All right, here's Ariana. Ariana, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast today. I'm thrilled to be with you. I just love what you are doing, and I'm delighted that we have a chance to really connect. Perfect. So we're here to talk about a a bunch of stuff. Uh, First, starting with your book that you just released, The Sleep Revolution. So first, give us a bit of background. Why this book? Why did you write this book? And (laughs) why, why now? So the why now has to do with uh, my own experience. You know, two years into building the Huffington Post, I collapsed from um, sleep deprivation and exhaustion, hit my head on the way down, broke my cheekbone. And that was the beginning of my recognizing that we are all living under a collective delusion. And uh, the collective delusion is that in order to uh, succeed, in order to launch a great company or build something important, we need to burn out along the way. And this is completely untrue. All modern science disproves it, but I really didn't know that until I got my own diagnosis of burnout nine years ago. And then I started... um, studying the latest science on sleep and recharging, and saw that, in fact, we were sacrificing productivity, creativity, good decisions in the name of productivity and creativity. And let me stop you there for a second. Why do we have this narrative that you need to burn out to be successful? Where did that come from? Well, it's so funny you should ask that because that was the main question I wanted to answer. And... um, That's why if you look at the book, the way I've structured it, right after I explore the crisis and the latest science, I go into the history. And it all started with the first industrial revolution when we began to think that um, we could treat human beings like machines and the goal with machines is to minimize downtime. And then the second industrial revolution with the invention of the light bulb so cultural icons like uh, Thomas Edison uh, saying things like sleep is an absurdity, it's going to be eliminated. Basically, people who revered him, rightly so, began to think that um, they too, if they were going to be great men, um, should um, minimize sleep in their lives. And we had the captains of industry saying the same thing. And Uh, It goes all the way to Bill Clinton, who heard in a class once uh, how 
great men throughout history didn't sleep a lot and so he cut down on his sleep and uh, later in life he said that every important mistake he made he made when he was tired mm-hmm. so i think there is basically a whole history of how we got here and of course it's not unique uh, um, as you know, Eric, cultures often believe false things. Like if you go back to the 1960s, there were still ads um, promoting cigarettes. <laughs> uh, there were literally doctors in white coats saying things like, I smoke mentals because they refresh my throat. <laughs> Right. Um, we already had, you know, we already had the science that uh, tobacco is killing us. Right. But it took a while for the perception to catch up with the science. And, and let me ask you this. You released the book, you know, fairly recently, but, in, uh, you know, you've had some very positive reception. But what has surprised you the most of how people have received the book? You know, any comments or, or what has surprised you? So what surprised me the most is um, how ready we are for the culture shift, that we are in the middle of this transition. And uh, even the most unexpected people are ready for change. Again, I'm not being Pollyanna. I'm not um, underestimating that there are always going to be pockets of resistance and people who change last. But I was amazed by how businesses are adopting new policies, how CEOs are coming out of the closet, not as being gay, but as being eight-hour sleepers like Jeff Bezos. I saw him recently at the Microsoft CEO Summit, and he said, I sleep for eight hours, and um, I know that even if I make half the decisions that I might have made if I slept less and they are 5% better, that's better for Amazon. Now, that's an incredibly important statement because so often founders that you deal a lot with think that they are indispensable and that they have to be up all the time and deal with every problem. And I think if they look at the science, because they are data-driven, they should just look at the data that shows how degraded their cognitive performance is, their creativity, their ability to find shortcuts in in terms of solving problems, to see the icebergs before they hit the Titanic. All sorts of things that founders need are degraded uh, when we're sleep deprived. Right. And let, let me ask you, so there are people who know they should be sleeping more. They know the people they admire should, you know, are sleeping more. Uh, and yet still they struggle to get the necessary sleep. What, what prevents them or what's holding them back from, from getting the right amount of sleep? Well, I think um, the first thing is to really profoundly believe that sleep is not negotiable, that it's not an, um, something that's optional. I know people may pay lip service to that, but when they really read the science, when they really see the conclusive scientific evidence, then they will change their minds about the importance of sleep. And when they change their minds, it's going to be easy to change their habits. So really, that's what, uh, that's how I structure the book. You know, you have the crisis, the science, the history, and the mystery of sleep. And then the second part is all about best practices, tips and techniques, and 
ways to actually get all the sleep and the quality of sleep you want um, once you've convinced yourself of how important it is. Right. No, I mean, it's, it's interesting. And I'm curious, you know, you have one point here about, uh, you know, sleep, having more sleep uh, helps people uh, have more sex. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yes. So it's kind of interesting. They even have um, exact numbers, like one hour more sleep increases your chances of having more sex by 14%. So <laughs> um, we can see anecdotally, of course, that when we are exhausted, sex is not the first thing on our minds. Right. But it also applies to a lot of other aspects of our lives in terms of our skin, in terms of our weight. You know, we have convinced people, for example, that nutrition and exercise are important. But what the new sleep science tells us is that when we are sleep deprived, we are more likely to crave carbs and sugars, and as a result, to put on weight. So if our goal is uh, losing weight or maintaining weight, we are truly better off to go back to sleep in the morning rather than put the alarm on too early to go to the gym. Right, right. And what I'm, what I'm fascinated by this is, is that you're not just writing a book here, you're really trying to, uh, to create a movement. You're doing a lot of things beyond the book that I, I don't typically see other authors do. For example, uh, the Sleep Revolution College Tour, the Drowsy Driving Awareness Campaign. Can you talk, one, a bit about you know, some of the other things you're, you're doing or what encompasses this movement? And two, you know, how you sort of thought about or what inspired that in the first place, that I'm going to do this stuff beyond the book? Yes, absolutely. Um, that has always been very important for me to make this about a culture shift. And I'm also really fascinated. How do you help accelerate a culture shift? It's not that, that we are creating it. The culture shift is happening, but we can do a lot to accelerate it. So the book is one element. The college tour is a very important part of this. You know, we originally we're going to and take the Sleep Revolution College Tour to 50 colleges with sleep fairs, uh, 12 of them I went to myself. But the response from other colleges who read and heard about it was so overwhelming that we are now up to 337 colleges. And uh, if you uh, follow the hashtag um, Sleep Revolution, you'll be amazed and touched by the things that have been written by college students, the new realizations they have, the new habits, um, what they are posting on social media. So I'm really excited about that because millennials, of course, can uh, accelerate dramatically both the way they live their lives and the way um, the entire culture um, sees this topic. And we also did a pop-up, a one-day pop-up on Snapchat's Discover channel called Recharge, which was mostly about sleep. And everybody was amazed by the response. Uh, we got 10 million um, viewers that day and tremendous engagement. So that was another indication of the zeitgeist and the timing being right. And we partnered with the Marriott Hotels and they printed over 2 million cards with my eight top sleep tips and they are putting them on people's pillows around the country and I have this great collection now of 
emails from friends who were staying in different hotels around the country and they suddenly found this card with my eight top sleep tips on their pillow. And we partnered with JetBlue um, to, to, to do really a whole sleep awareness class on the plane from uh, New York to Las Vegas. We did a competition with Airbnb uh, that we are soon going to be announcing the winner of who is going to uh, sleep in my beautiful sleep temple that I've created in my bedroom here in Soho in New York. So as you can see, we've tried to approach it from every angle. Right. And I'm so happy you're going to colleges too, because I remember you know, when I was in college, everyone was doing, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people were doing Adderall to stay up all night to... Yes. And uh, yeah, uh, so it's so important that, that people know that, you know, sleep is important or necessary. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, exactly true You what you're saying, Eric. We, we have this saying that um, in some form or another is there in every college, you know, Great social life, uh, sleep, pick two. And sleep is the one that students feel they have to sacrifice. Yeah, no, it, it's unfortunate. And I'm excited your book is, uh, is changing that. I'm curious, now, now that you've had sort of, you got a lot of reception about the book. If you were to release the book today, if you hadn't released it yet, but you heard all this feedback, is there anything you would have added or changed or- yes, there are, there are two things that came out after my book had gone to press that I absolutely wish uh, had come out before so I could have included them. So I mention them every time I speak because they are so important and such clear indications of the zeitgeist. One is um, what Mark Bertolini, the CEO of Aetna did just very recently. He gave all um, Aetna employees a there are over 49,000 now Fitbits and um, to track their sleep. And the ones who get uh, seven hours or more uh, a night get $25 per night. Now, what is fascinating about that is not just the financial incentive, but the fact that a major public company has recognized that when their employees sleep enough, that's not just good for their health. It's good for the company's bottom line. It's good for um, reducing healthcare costs and improving productivity. So that was a, a great kind of zeitgeist moment. And the other one was an article in the Harvard Business Review by the McKinsey Consulting Firm. And the title was The Proven Link Between Leadership and and sleep, and it's just an amazing article about all the science of what happens to our prefrontal cortex, where leadership abilities are housed and where decision-making abilities are housed when, our, when we are sleep-deprived and how degraded these things are. Uh, now, speaking of, of you know big companies, uh, you've just joined Uber as the board of directors. And I know you guys did a, a sleep event together and they're obviously super supportive. How does Travis himself sleep? Oh, actually, it's great. We, we did a video with Travis. I'll send it to you. Um, in, in, in an Uber, when he and I uh, rode along with passengers talking to them about sleep, it was part of our campaign against drowsy driving that we launched together with Uber. 
and um, during that conversation, um, Travis talked about how his habits have changed, how he, like most founders, um, believed all these delusions about how he had to sacrifice sleep in order to uh, create a successful company. But now he has seen so clearly that when he gets enough sleep, when he is fully recharged, the decisions he makes for Uber are so much better. And um, he's spreading that message to the company in terms of the cultural values at Uber, in terms of people not crossing that, that red line of what uh, makes their own lives sustainable and what makes them show up at work at their best. Right, right. It's interesting how ingrained this sort of, you know, narrative about burning out it is even, uh, you know, in like high school or elementary school, you know, people are so busy School is so long and so many extracurricular activities that, you know, even kids don't have time to sleep or don't make time to sleep as much as they should. Yes, I mean, it's actually true. Schools, especially because schools tend to start way too early for their circadian rhythms of students. And um, there is a whole movement afoot to start school later because um middle schoolers and high schoolers have uh, different rhythms than you or I. And so to ask them to be ready to learn at 7 is like asking me to be ready to do anything useful at 4 a.m. Right, yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, And I'm curious, I mean, you could have written, you could have chosen a bunch of other topics to to write a book about. If you hadn't written a book about sleep, uh, what are some other sort of book ideas that, that came to mind that you were considering in this process or that, that you may write in the in the future? Well, the book that I wrote before The Sleep Revolution Thrive is really a larger look at redefining um, success, going beyond money and power, and um, including what I call the third metric and well-being that Um, Her sleep at its foundation is the first part of that, but then the others are wisdom, which is very connected to how recharged we are, wonder, again, our capacity to be fully present in our lives, and giving, you know, how do we give back? So I feel that this is kind of what I'm passionate about right now. How do we help people um, lead sustainable lives so that... um, we can not just uh, survive and succeed at the expense of our health and our happiness, but recognize that there should be no trade-off between our own well-being and um, the quality of uh, the companies we build or the, um, the, the job we do. That I'm really, really feeling very passionate about that. And we are doing a lot around it at the Huffington Post. I'm speaking a lot around it. So I also love to invite people to share their own stories. Anybody who is listening uh, to us now, um, we'd love to share their experiences because we can all learn from each other. Nobody has all the wisdom and some people may learn from what I'm saying, others will learn from what you're saying. So sharing our experiences and building that community is going to be key. I was speaking at um, the Stanford Business School uh, recently and talking to the students afterwards, and they were telling me that the burnout 
in Silicon Valley. Some of them had come from um, jobs in London and New York, and they felt that Silicon Valley was the worst. So I know I know you live in San Francisco. So changing the, the worst in what way? The worst in in terms of uh, glamorizing burnout. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> And, yeah. and 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 they were telling me, you know, honestly, the terrible impact that had, you know, the amount of students who had menin- had gotten meningitis or whooping cough, <laughs> all these diseases, which are largely a sign of very suppressed immune system and not being able to fight the viruses that are surrounding us. And also at Stanford, I did a great conversation with Andre Nguidala from the Golden State Warriors. And he, um, together with many other athletes, are now talking about how by prioritizing their sleep, their stats have improved. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, let's talk about the Uber uh, thing just just a little bit because you, uh, you know, recently joined the board and, you know, it's one of the most impressive companies in the world. It's one of the most important companies in the world. You know, it does... You know, incredible service for the people it employs, and, and as a as a consumer, I love it. Uh, but it isn't exactly, you know, or as of right now, it doesn't have the reputation for being the spitting image of health and wellness. One might say. Um, <laughs> how would you uh, first give us the backstory of, of how you joined and why you joined, and and talk about your goals uh, as a board member? So um, Tra- Travis and I um, became friends over the last few years, and um, I am um, a big admirer of what he's doing. I, I've done a lot of work around cities here at the Huffington Post to have a dedicated section called What's Working that focuses a lot on um, solutions, um, often in small startups that start um, in different cities around the world. I've been involved with Bloomberg Philanthropies and what Mike Bloomberg has been funding around um, solutions to problems um, in different cities. And I feel that what, um, what Uber is doing is truly transforming cities, um, not just in terms of transportation and making making transportation so much easier, as, as he says, you know, as reliable as running water, um, but also what it allows people to do with their lives. Um, I've met together with Travis with um, a lot of drivers, for example, and we had a meeting here and I the day we announced I'm joining the board at the New York office with female Uber drivers, and it was kind of moving to hear their stories. You know, there was one female driver who was an actor, for example, and she wanted to pursue her dream. And being an Uber driver with the flexibility that allowed um, made it possible for her to follow her acting dream, which which was not successful enough for her to make a living. And uh, a lot of stories like that. And I love the fact that people um, have a lot of opportunities now, partly thanks to Uber, partly thanks to Airbnb and other companies that are part of the sharing economy to actually not just have to do a job nine to five, even if it's something they, they despise in order to make a living. Right. Now tell me, what's uh, what's something that the public doesn't know 
or another thing, the public doesn't know about Uber, doesn't appreciate about Uber as much as they should? I think that, um, as Travis said when he announced my joining the board, uh, we need to get better at telling the stories, the stories of uh, the drivers, the stories of the riders, uh, the stories of what's happening in the cities. I think, um, for example, the story around drug driving um, and how Uber in the cities where it was tracked um, has helped bring down drunk driving because people who drink have an easy alternative available to them. Um, that story hasn't been fully told. Now the work we're doing together against drowsy driving, which last year killed 8,000 people. There were 1.2 um, million crashes. Um, that story... Um, needs to be to be told much better. So, um, you know, it's a company, as you know, Eric, that has grown incredibly fast. And um, obviously a lot of the people at the top uh, come from an engineering background. Um, so it's really great to also see how we can not just tell the stories ourselves, but most important, provide platforms for Uber partners and uh, Uber riders to tell their stories. Does this uh, sort of, you know, forebode a lot more either investing or advising or, or involvement with technology companies or, or do you see yourself sort of just doubling down on the ones that you're already, you know, involved in? I feel that um, I don't have like a five-year plan. <laughs> I Right now, my, my plate is very full with the Huffington Post, with the, um, the sleep revolution and the cultural shift we want to see uh, around the world. Um, but every day brings kind of new ideas. And, and that's one of the things I love, you know, working with incredibly creative people um, and being open to any new idea, like you and I talked um, about um, what you are doing with On Deck and right. maybe doing something together on that. I just love that. I love learning about new things and uh, getting involved um, where something feels right and, and, um, and new. Right. And that's, I mean, it's interesting because yeah, not many people are in this position but uh, I would sort of equate it with, you know, Larry Summers was a recent guest on, on the podcast and, you know, he was telling me that he sort of, he splits his time between academia, between writing, uh, so you know, he teaches, he writes, and then he's on the board of, you know, Square and a few other companies. Um, and then, you know, there's always the politics stuff if he is, uh, if he is called upon and if he is interested. Um, there's not that many people that can, you know, can do stuff in those world, you know, technology, politics, academia, writing books. And so, you know, for, for some like you guys, the options are kind of limitless. So I guess as you sort of, you know, you're going to spend the next whatever period of time really focused on sleep and on the book, but do you have a sort of big project in mind afterwards that you want to tackle? Or do you think it's more of a diversified approach like uh, Larry or uh, what's the next movement, I guess is what I'm... So, um... You know, I'm I'm actually a big believer in doubling down on something. And I yeah. think right now, as I look around me, there's still so much pain and unnecessary suffering because people 
um, believe the wrong thing about sleep. I mean, I see so many people literally sleepwalking through their lives, um, not really bringing joy into what they're doing. And that's incredibly important for me. It's not just enough to get stuff done. Um, it's also like being grateful about what we are doing and and um, and bringing a certain presence and vitality to everything we're doing. And we kind of forget how fragile life is. Um, I recently actually had another reminder of that. I had invested in a in a new company, in a startup, by um, a, a brilliant young woman who had been at Facebook, Google, Snapchat, and then she created her own company. And she sent a couple of weeks ago this email to all her investors about how she had to close down the company because she was first diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer. And then after a double mastectomy, she was diagnosed with aggressive ovarian cancer. Wow. And, um, and this is a young woman in her 30s who was pursued by everyone to be hired. I mean, I actually pursued her to hire her as a CEO here before Jared Gruss, who is our CEO now, because um, I, I was so impressed with her, but she was already starting this new company, and that's how I ended up investing in it. And And that is kind of a reminder for all of us that it's not enough to just see our life as a series of goals that we achieve. But we also remember that this is it. This is the day we have. And the quality of that day matters. And when I'm exhausted and sleep deprived, the quality of my day is not the same. I'm not the same person. I'm irritable. I'm cranky. Um, I would be here maybe doing this uh, conversation with you, but it would be more like checking a checking another box rather than being really right. present and, and feeling this is great. I'm so glad I'm talking with Eric. I didn't know him before. You know, it's just a very different experience. And I'm sure you, you realize that in your life and everybody anecdotally knows that. Right. Absolutely. You talk about the book about you know, the role technology plays, you know, in sleep and, and screens and, and how that, you know, make, make, makes the problem worse. Are you seeing uh, startups or companies or, or technology that, that that can help us sleep more or better at all? Uh, oh, yes. I have an entire appendix in, um, in the sleep revolution about uh, some of the fabulous new um, wearable devices, um, tech gadgets that can help with our sleep. But I'm, I have an absolute rule about having no smartphones, <laughs> iPads, laptops, or anything that has our data and our entire work life on by our bed. So um, other than that, um, wearing something like I wear the jawbone up to track my sleep, that's great. But tracking things with your smartphone, it's very hard because we're all a little addicted uh, to our devices, and uh, no matter what our intentions are, we are very likely, if we wake up in the middle of the night, to be tempted to go to our devices to um, read our latest texts or um, emails and uh, reintroduce ourselves with our daily lives. And it's interesting, when we talk about burnout, you know, when, when I talk about in Silicon Valley, we sort of 
are talking to a certain economic strata, like people who have who have money and who, who can afford to sleep, you know, and, and, and they just, for whatever reason, you know, don't. But what about people who are, you know, don't have means and, you know, often have to work multiple jobs or, you know, what is sort of the conversation around, around sleep for, for them? And what, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, interestingly enough, um, the harder in a way um, life is in terms of making a living and, as you said, having maybe two or three jobs, the more important it is to get enough sleep so that you are resilient um, in, in terms of whatever you have to do to overcome life setbacks and obstacles. And I um, held a clinic recently at Harlem and I invited people to to come and learn about sleep. And it was heartbreaking to see how little awareness there was about the importance of sleep and how many people would say to me, you know, I, I finish my job or my jobs and then this is my time to watch my shows. And there was a woman who um, watches TV for four hours after she gets back home and she said she would fall asleep uh, watching TV and then uh, the TV would wake her up. <laughs> she would not be able to go back to sleep because she hadn't done this transition that I describe in the book where you help your brain slow down. Um, and so she would have a really hard time going back to sleep and she would end up in the kitchen eating something sweet. So it becomes a vicious cycle that makes life infinitely harder. And she ended up with diabetes. And so the key here is there is a lot that has to be done to give people better jobs, increase the minimum wage, but something that is free and available and at our disposal is sleep. Um, we may have to give up um, some of our discretionary time watching shows. I, I, for example, have not watched the, the latest Game of Thrones episodes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I definitely prioritize uh, waking up recharged rather than being up on all the shows. Right. Um, and it is interesting. I mean, we are right now talking uh, to sort of broaden the conversation a little bit. We are talking in, you know, May 27, 2016, an election year, you know, Huffington Post, everything that's going on with uh, politics. Where is sort of, you know, obviously you're focused on leading the, the sleep revolution movement, but where is sort of your mind in terms of uh, how you know, media is interacting with, you know, all the candidates, with what's going on in the political, you know, scene right now. What is your, where is your sort of general head at and what are your sort of, what are your thoughts? Well, obviously, I'm spending a lot of time on our political coverage. The Huffington Post has taken a very strong stance in terms of Donald Trump. We covered him um, at the beginning in the entertainment section as a buffoon because he's clearly both a buffoon and he's dangerous. And then the day that he proposed banning 1.6 billion Muslims, we started covering him as a clear and present danger with um, a, a note that is appended at the end of every article that mentions him, which is um, very simply reminding our readers of who he is, that he... Uh, has wanted to ban um, an entire religion from this country, that he regularly incites violence, 
at his rallies that he still believes the president wasn't born here, that he's a misogynist. How, how do you explain his popularity? Well, I think that in times of um, a lot of uncertainty, uh, where many people's lives have not gotten better, despite the fact that the economy has gotten better, when students are strapped with um, terrible college loans, when uh, um, the American dream has really disappeared for many people in the in the middle class. Um, we've seen it throughout history that when a, a political figure emerges to play to people's fears, to identify external enemies, whether it's Mexicans or Muslims, um, and to promise a new greatness, um, that per that leader uh, finds traction, and um, that's really what's happening with um, with Trump. And the media have not have made it much easier for him by giving him wall-to-wall coverage. Right. It's sort of unparalleled. You know, it's, it's impossible to fathom how how, yes. how this happened. So it's sort of a crazy question. But what what happens if he wins? Oh, um, you know, I really feel that our job at the Huffington Post is to do everything we can to make sure he doesn't. The voters will do what they are going to do. But between now and November, um, we need to remain, I've told all my editors and reporters here, uh, single-mindedly focused on doing as good a job as we can, reminding the voters of who he is. And if we fail and he wins, uh, we'll figure that out then. (laughs) Right, right. Across that bridge if we get there. Yes. Okay, so even asking some, some bigger, broader questions just on, on you and your career and, and moving on. One is, you know, you talked about earlier, you know, you wrote this book, Thrive, about you know, helping redefining success. Uh, let me ask you, you know, right now at this stage in your career, when you think of the term success, uh, who comes to mind uh, as someone who's, a, you know, is a hero and someone you, you admire, want to emulate, and why? So throughout my, my whole life, you know, i um, I have two heroes. Um, one <laughs> was my mother, and the other was Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome. Yeah. So um, what I learned from my mom uh, is to really be in the moment. She used to say, don't miss the moment. And uh, to really not be afraid to fail. And I think that's a great message for entrepreneurs. She used to say, failure is not the opposite of success. It's a stepping stone to success. So I think that is absolutely key to to recognize that you can take risks, that failure is not a problem, that there's nobody who has not failed along the way. We're talking about Travis. You know, he regularly talks about all the failures that he had before Uber. I regularly talk about uh, my second book, say, being rejected by 36 publishers, a lot of other failures along the way. And Marcus Aurelius is a hero because there he was running an entire empire, facing invasions, plagues, um, and somehow managing to remain unflappable, centered in the presence of everything that happened. I find that an incredibly admirable quality that we can all aspire to. 
Mm-hmm. When I look at your, uh, you know, your work, your books, your your companies, uh, you know, one thread that that you know underlies them is sort of a desire to 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 live healthy, to live well, to to live smart. Uh, what is sort of but how about on the skill set? What what's your core competence that has allowed you or enabled you to be successful in in different fields? I think um, constantly wanting to learn and. Um, do things better um, and uh, connect with a deeper part of myself from which I could approach life um, in a way that um, was wiser and more sustainable. Um, I feel that's something which um, has always been part of my life ever since I can remember. And... um, that meant that um, when I would make mistakes, my goal would be to learn from them and keep going, and that I'm endlessly curious. I, I just love learning new things and recognizing that we have the power to shift the culture when it's going in a way that's not healthy. Right, and you you, know, you write about sleeping pills, you know, being the new cigarettes, maybe in, in twenty years. Do what do um you know? There's a certain group of technologists that wants to sort of you know get rid of sleep or get rid of aging or get rid of sort of these natural processes through through technology. Um, you know, is there anything about that that you sympathize with or think could actually uh, you know be effective, or is it all sort of just not healthy? Well, nothing. Um, nothing um, <laughs> keeps us. Um more vital and youthful than sleeping enough. Nothing um, accelerates aging (laughs) faster than sleep deprivation. It's just amazing to look at the science about that. The important thing is to realize that however long we're on this earth, can we actually be as vital and as engaged as we can be every day of our lives while we're here? What's something over the years that you used to fervently believe, be a very strong believer in, that you've changed your mind on or now see as fundamentally misguided and whether, the, you know, sleep is obviously one of them, but what's, what's another one at maybe, uh, you know, personally or work-related or, you know, intellectually or, or you know, relationships? What's something that comes to mind? I think it's definitely beyond sleep. It's this idea of being always on. Um, being always available, being always on, being quick to respond to a text or an email. Uh, That was something which I believed and practiced for a a large part of my life and now realize how it actually makes us um, much less effective, much less creative and more prone to mistakes. And not to mention... um, reducing the amount of joy and happiness we get out of life. Right. Yeah. And I'm curious if you could go back to your, you know, 25 year old self, uh, what advice would you, would you have for 25 year old, uh, Ariana? Oh, I would tell her to stop worrying. (laughs) Uh, because I think so often we just worry so much about what's happening, about every setback. And, um, I now love um, to live my life the way uh, the Persian poet uh, Rumi urged us to live our lives. Live your life, he said, as though everything is rigged in your favor. Mm-hmm. 
I love that because um, in the end, when we look back, a lot of the biggest heartbreaks, the biggest setbacks turned out to be the best thing that happened to us Um, to lead to some of the most wonderful things. I mean, one of my biggest heartbreaks was the man I was in love with through my 20s didn't want to have children, and I really, really wanted to have children. I got to be 30, and I left him and moved to New York from London where we lived, and maybe you can say that everything good had happened to me. You know, my children, whom I adore, the Huffington Post, uh, all my books and my work happened because a man wouldn't marry me and wouldn't want to have children with me. So um, there are many other examples in our lives when we look back that... uh, prove um, Rumi to be correct about living our lives as though everything is is um, rigged in our favor. You know, I've been thinking a lot about, this is sort of a bit of a tangent, but about exes. Uh, are you are you still friends with the, 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 the man you were with in your 20s or, or your exes in general? Unfortunately, he died. He was oh, twice wow. my age, if you can believe it, and half my size, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. Someone should write a book on exes and how we should treat them better uh, <laughs> as a as an order of thought. Um, okay, cool. I mean, when you think about your legacy, right, you know, I've written books and done work in various different fields, uh, you know, starting companies, being on boards of companies, what do you want to be, you know, known for or remembered or... Oh, so, um, Eric, that's interesting, but I really never think about that. I have zero interest in how I'm remembered, in any kind of legacy or anything like that. I, um, I First of all, I actually don't believe that um, in death, I believe that our soul and our spirit and our essence survives us. So that's much more of much greater importance to me than how people on this earth remember us if at all <laughs> wow so is is that inspired by a religious belief or or how did you come to to believe that well i've studied um every religion and um it's a spiritual belief it's not attached to any individual religion but every religion really believes the same thing um you know the kingdom of god is within and um, and I profoundly believe that and have always believed it. Did you grow up religious? Um, I grew up uh, praying just by myself. I mean, my family wasn't um, religious in, um, in the sense of um, going to church. Uh, my mother had a, a very clear spiritual approach to life and um, definitely brought that... To my sister and me, I learned to meditate when I was 13. Wow. Uh, so yes, a spiritual dimension has always been part of my life. Did your, did your parents get a lot of sleep? or did <laughs> My sleep? mother. Oh, yes. I, I actually start the sleep revolution like that because my mother um, was a big champion of sleep. She actually sounds like a sleep... Uh, <laughs> scientist because she would tell me that if I get enough sleep everything will be better in my life she would say your your uh, grades your health and your happiness so yes she didn't have a college education but um, today's sleep scientists would definitely have uh, agreed with her (laughs) 
Yeah, wow. What you're doing is is so, so important and I'm so glad that um, you know, you're speaking up about it and not just writing this book, but, but doing this movement. Um, so I, I want to, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, but I wanted to leave with sort of an ask for, for people who think that, who know they should be sleeping, but think they're, you know, they're just too busy to be doing it, whether they have a company or multiple jobs, what is your, your advice and last, uh, you know, words of, of wisdom to them? Well, I, would love for them to look at the data, to look at the science, to convince themselves that everything they want, everything they aspire to, in terms of um, their startup or their um, job or their ambitions will actually be more likely if they prioritize their sleep. Without question, Sleep is a performance enhancement as well as making it um, very clear that um, it makes us happier and healthier. So that's the, the most important message I want to leave our listeners with. And, and Eric, thank you so much. I really loved this and I, I look forward to seeing you when you come to New York. Perfect, and I'm excited to uh, to host the to co-host an on deck dinner as well. Yes, fantastic. Absolutely, are have a fantastic weekend. The book is Sleep Revolution. Buy it, and uh, yes, we will we will talk soon. Thank you so much. <laughs>